Hey, give it up for Johnny Cash. No, oh, his name's Brad. We're thankful for him. That was awesome, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good morning. Uh, if by chance I haven't had an opportunity to meet you and introduce myself, my name is Jesse, and uh, I get to teach the Bible uh, almost every week here, and just a great privilege to do so. We are going to be in the book of Ruth this morning, so uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Ruth, uh, and if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along with us, one of the ushers will gladly hand you one. Just keep your hand raised, and they'll make sure that they, they give you one. And as you're turning to the book of Ruth, I just want to uh, do my part to kind of get some buy-in to what we're doing for Easter uh, and just add a little bit to what Brad Franklin had already shared. Uh, it is Easter season, uh, and in the, uh, the bookstore, we have these provided for you if you want to purchase them. Uh, it's a devotional by C.S. Lewis, takes you through uh, the month uh, of Easter to do a devotional and to get ready for Easter, because Easter is going to be great. Uh, it's a great day for you to do a couple things. Uh, number one, hey, hey, good to see you guys. Welcome. Brian, Brian's here. He just had open heart surgery like yesterday. And uh, no, four or five days ago, yeah. So it's really, really good to see you guys. Glad to have you. Um, so the devotional uh, uh, is available for you. And then, and then as we get ready for Easter, we tell you this every year, uh, which is number one, um, invite your friends, pray for your friends. Ask people to come to Easter so that they'll hear the gospel message and they'll feel the love of Christ. And then we're gonna we're kind of doing some things to get ready. Uh, I see a bunch of our high school kids coming up. There's room over here, guys. Um, we're nice and full this morning, which is which is great. Um, what was I saying? Something about Easter. Yeah, bring your friends. Good, you're listening. That's awesome. Bring your friends. Invite them. And then we're doing a couple things that are nice and fun for you. One, Brad shared. We're working on uh, some kind of food for after the services for you to hang out with. And then on that day, uh, we recognize that many families will be here and, and you'll be here. And most of you, not everybody, but most of you will dress up for Easter. It's kind of the thing to do. My wife, I, I saw in an Amazon uh, email, has already purchased Easter outfits for our kids. So we're already preparing for that day. And uh, my wife, every time we do a holiday, and it's really difficult for us for Christmas Eve as well as for Easter, is she always wants to do a family photo uh, and it's hard, you know, I'm talking with people and visiting and, and all of that after services. And so um, we, ha we, get, we get one picture every couple of years. And, but we're, what we're doing this year is we're setting up an a Easter photo booth this year that will be available for you and your families. You can take some pictures, uh, share via social media, let people know that you worship Jesus that day at Sear Bible Church. And it'll have our theme on there that we're going with, uh, empty tomb, no more empty life. And then uh, Friday, Good Friday, we got one service at 6 p.m., and on Good Friday, that, that's a night for us to just reflect on the, the radicalness of the crucifixion as a church family. We want to invite you to come to that. And we've got a special night planned for that as well. I'll be teaching. Uh, and then uh, in addition to that, Wayne's going to teach. In addition to that, Brad Beers has a segment that he's teaching. Dave Pastrell, one of our men's leaders, is going to be teaching. John Drollinger, I don't know if you've ever heard him preach. He's also going to be preaching. And then John Amon's going to be preaching. And no, not each uh, session is 45 minutes. Uh, they have been given an allotted amount of time uh, to fit within a service. But it's going to be a special night uh, that we reflect on Christ and what he's done for us. And then again, Easter. So I want to invite you to those things. Last week, we launched our VISTA report. If you weren't here last week for that, our VISTA report shares with you all uh, the major statistics from last year in 2018 that we want to celebrate 
that God did for us and on our behalf. Uh, some great things in there, great insights in there as we continue to push into 2019. Those reports are available on the front page of the web. Uh, so sbctrucky.com, go there, check it out. Or you can get a hard copy right when you walked in the door. They're sitting there uh, where the greeters normally are. You can grab a Vista report there. And then it, it, we've got all kinds of new things that are popping up and that we're pushing into because we know that you're able to travel and be here uh, because snow is, is slowly weaning and dying off. So, and we're so thankful for it. And, uh, and so be on a lookout for that. One of the things that we're doing is, uh, is Kimber. Kimber wants to start a brand new kind of like uh, outdoor ministry where, where we get together and we do some awesome things outdoors. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce you to Kimber. Kimber, why don't you come up and share with everyone your vision of what you're going to accomplish and how they can uh, get involved in, in this new endeavor. And you said already after the first service, 10? Like 10 people already already signed up to help out. Maybe somebody signed up and they wanted to include them and their spouse. So Okay, so 11. <laughs> okay, hi, my name is Kimber and I'm a recovering codependent. Oops, wrong meeting. <laughs> this, this group has more energy than the 830 group. Okay, so let me just start out with taking a survey. If you could raise your hand if you feel like you are a good steward of your leisure time. Okay, so there's a big need for this ministry. I have four kids. What is this thing called, leisure? So I think oftentimes as Christians, we maybe feel guilty to enjoy our leisure time. And I believe that the antidote to guilt is what? Gratitude. So um, the goal is to set up a a ministry where we go outside and enjoy the general revelation of God in his creation here in Truckee and Lake Tahoe. So we're going to be practicing um, snow sports, sorry, Jesse, but snow skiing, snowboarding, paddleboarding, kayaking, hiking, golf. Um, boating. So um, we had somebody volunteer to do some fly fishing um, lessons. So we just want to get like-minded people outside of the four walls of the church and um, enjoy what God has created so we can fellowship together with like-minded people and possibly invite, invite some of your friends who you can't get to church to come and join us. So, and then I'll just end with... Um, for your information, there is no 11th commandment that says, thou shalt not enjoy your life. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> Kimber will be outside at the info booth if you want to sign up and get more information. I want to encourage you uh, to check that out. Um, and then as we continue uh, this morning, let us prepare our hearts with the reading of Scripture. I want to invite you, if you're able to this morning, to honor God's word And stand with us as we read from chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Ramelon and Chilion. They were Epaphrathites, which I'm sure I said wrong, but it's okay, from Bethlehem and Judah. 
They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there for about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left alone without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Lord, we trust your word to be true to us and change us in your likeness this morning to bring us unto salvation and to sanctify our souls. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You may be seated. There's a story told of Benjamin Franklin. During his time of service, he was an ambassador to France. In France, he spoke to a group of intellectuals who continually scoffed at his belief in the Bible. Unconvinced that these men were familiar with the book, they mocked. Franklin said, by the way, gentlemen, I have come across a most intriguing love story that I would like to read to you tonight. I think you will find it interesting. He then proceeded to read a handwritten copy of the book of Ruth. After he finished the four short chapters, his audience was ecstatic. That is the greatest love story we have ever heard, they exclaimed. You must publish it at once. Franklin answered, it has already been published. It is in the Bible. And the scoffers were silent. I shared last week by way of introduction to the book of Ruth, but I wanted to share this book for several reasons. One of which, that it's a love story, and almost all of us love a good love story. The other reason is because this book ultimately points to how God uses normal people in the process uh, of redemption. We will see eventually that Ruth will give birth to a son, and through that son, eventually through that lineage of that son, through Ruth, as we see in Matthew chapter 1, the Messiah will be born. This book has been called a novella or a short story. With any story, you are first presented with a problem. And then as you progress within the story, you have the unraveling of the problem and then a solution. It is in which J.R. Tolkien stated that within every good story, the reason you love that said story, Tolkien, the writer of The Lord of the Rings, said is because within that story ultimately is the gospel. What he meant was that a good story enlivens us, awakens us, moves us, because within it is written that thing that I think is written within the DNA of all of us, that we need salvation, that the way of the world is not going to bring us contentment and happiness. It can only come from something bigger than us, something greater than us. I shared with the first service, you can even see the gospel, believe it or not, in just about every single Marvel movie. Think of it for a moment. You have a character who has some sort of power. There's something special or unique about him, only to be confronted with the problem, the enemy, which in almost every one of those stories, the hero is beaten almost completely to a pulp. He dies, quite possibly looks like he's dead or he's near death, only to be resurrected and then to defeat the enemy. It's true of just about every Marvel movie, except for the Avengers. It ends very depressingly. The result of that will come in the next movie I hear. Within this story, there, are, there is a problem. The first problem we shared a little bit last week is the days in which the book was written. It was written, it says, in the days of the judges, a time of relativism, 
a time where each person said, my truth is my truth, not that, that they needed a king. I don't need a king. I'm my own king. I don't need a god. I'm my own god. This is God's people going through a cycle of rebellion against God, being crushed by the enemies of Israel, only for God to rise up a judge to free them from their oppression. Judges chapter 17, verse 6 says of these days that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That each person made their own truth. They could decide for themselves the ways in which they wanted to explore sexually, the ways they wanted to explore in regards to the kind of gods they would worship. They literally did whatever they wanted in their own eyes, which led to all kinds of issues. Ruth was written in one of the darkest of days. Ruth is a love story that shines, if you will, as a diamond in the rough. It, it, there's hardship. There's, there's sin, rampant sin. And in this little day and age, we find this cute, beautiful little story of Ruth. The other problem that we will see as it unravels is the problem of the famine. There's two problems that are presented within the text. One, the judges, the time of the judges, a dark day, but also a time where there is no food in the land. In fact, we're told that the famine is occurring in a place called Bethlehem, which is in Judah, which is ironic. Does anyone know the name of Bethlehem? It's called the house of bread. Bethlehem was rich in wheat, barley, olives, almonds, and grapes. They grew plentifully in the area. And that place, Bethlehem, we will see later in the Gospels is the place where Jesus was born. Bethlehem was located in Judah, which is called Praise. Now they moved from Bethlehem in this, or I'm sorry, from Bethlehem to, to Moab in a time, in a time of drought, in a time of famine. And we have to understand something in the Old Testament, which isn't necessarily true for us today, and that is that whenever you see a famine, oftentimes in the Old Testament it's been brought on as judgment from God. God caused the famine in the land to actually get the people to come to a place where they would worship God, to come from a place of sin to a place of no longer sinning and a place of worshiping the Lord. Let me present you with the first application this morning for us. Is there a famine in your life? Is there a drought in your life? Metaphorically, what I'm speaking of is, is all of the issues and problems and struggles that we deal with people. This room is big enough for me to know something uh, without a shadow of a doubt. There are people here who are struggling. There are people here who are going through something. And whatever your famine is, whatever your drought is, whatever your struggle is, let me ask you the next question. How do you deal with your drought? How do you deal with your famine? How do you deal with the times when, when you, you, you feel weak and, and you feel as if sin and temptation are going to overtake you? How do you feel uh, about taking things into your own hands when you're depressed and you're anxious? Now, let me say this, that God causes famines in our lives and droughts in our lives to get us to move from a place of complacency back to a place of seeing him as the one and true God that we desperately need. James chapter 1, to reiterate it again, literally reads that we're to count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that those trials are going to produce something in us that will ultimately lead to our perfection and our completion that we would lack in nothing. Let us just recognize that a famine such as this is, is actually been allowed by God's providence so that Ruth would come to a place of salvation and that Naomi's praise would return. 
More on that here in a moment. But the Bible actually shares with us something very interesting about the famine and the drought. It's prophesied in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. That days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Could it be just big picture now, not just focusing on you, but but the church as a whole in the United States of America, that we are in a famine of hearing God's word? During the week, just by, again, God's providence, Wayne sent me this article he came across. I thought it would be beneficial to share it with you. In the article it sent me, it reads this, that today, less than 20% of all Americans attend church on a regular basis. And as a result, churches are dying in very large numbers. And this is a trend that appears to be accelerating. Between 6,000 and 10,000 churches in the U.S. are dying each year. That means around 100 to 200 churches will close this week alone. And the pace will accelerate unless our congregations make some dramatic changes. This fulfills the prophecy and the fulfillment of what Paul told Timothy. That in the end times, that people will not endure sound teaching. They'll not be be attracted to sound teaching, but they'll have itchy ears and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. It's a return to the days of the judges. Give me a preacher who will not tell me the truth. Give me a preacher who will make me feel good about doing the things I'm doing now. Now, what was really neat this morning is I shared how God using famine and difficulty and hardships to grow us. If you look anywhere historically, the church has always thrived greatly under hardship. I mentioned China. The last statistic which I read is that in China, 50% claim to be born-again Christians. Do you know it's illegal to worship Jesus in China? So here I am, unbeknownst to myself in the first service, sharing this reality that there was a lady here with a very sick, uh, very, not sick, very uh, thick Asian accent who's actually from China. She came up to me this morning and she said, I have to share this with you. I want to show you our church, which is right by Shanghai. And she showed me pictures of her church. And she said to me, she said, the sanctuary in this church, it sits 3,000 people. We have three services. There are 10,000 people in my church. Then she said to me, on our church, we have a cross. And the government has told us we can't have a cross on the building. But because in our church, We represent 40 different nations that come to our church. They've allowed us to do it, but we had to accommodate by putting a government flag outside our building. She says, we've justified it by putting on the outside of the building, but we will not put it on the inside of our building. She said, it's illegal to be a Christian. In fact, there's laws that you cannot enter into a church unless you're older than 12. She said, in addition to that, she said, it is illegal. And she says, in the coffee shops and restaurants, everyone's talking about Jesus. And what they're saying is, you need to turn away. These are her words. This is how they preach the gospel. We have to turn away from Buddha. Turn to Jesus. She said, it's illegal. It's illegal. I'm like, how do you not get arrested? She said, because the policemen are Christians. It's a great, 
great point of something that we should rejoice as Christians. It's something we should celebrate. But at the same time, we pray for them. She says it's not easy to be a Christian in China. You know where it is easy to be a Christian? Right here. There's a type of famine that exists within the American church. Not all. In fact, as you dive deeper in the statistics, you'll find that the reality is that yes, yes indeed, Christianity is declining in America, but it's also accelerating. And some of these statistics basically have said what we're seeing is we're seeing a dying away of what they call the mushy middle. Those who actually aren't Christians, but because they were Americans, declared themselves as Christians, are now no longer declaring themselves as Christians. They're actually stating what has always been true. They're not Christians. However, those of us who desire the Bible, those of us who desire uh, 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 just a a huge appetite for God's word and doctrine and theology and, and Christ himself, that is actually growing. That's the good news. It looks as if we're declining, but in reality, the depth of Christianity is broadening. In fact, in one survey I read, it stated the number one reason people attend church is to hear the voice of God, to hear the Bible preached, to hear what God says. This is one of the reasons, again, why we're teaching Ruth. But we're also discussing this reality of drought and famine in your own personal life, the struggle that you're going with as well as the struggle in the church, and how do we deal with it. We'll get to that here in a moment, but I want you to understand that the famine actually links Ruth and Naomi to the other patriarchs in Scripture. You'll notice in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, that Abraham experienced a type of famine and was forced to go down to Egypt. I want you to notice the famine and then the movement. Genesis chapter 26 verse 1 shares a similar kind of famine that fell upon Isaac that forced him to go to another place. In Genesis chapter 41 verse 54, we, we notice that Joseph himself, who was sold into slavery, encounters his brothers after he's been sold into slavery and has grown as the number two man in Egypt. His brothers are forced to go to him for help and to find forgiveness from their brother all because of a famine. It's as if the author is just letting us know that that Ruth, though that this book is the only book, it's the only one named after a non-Jew. But the author is purposefully allowing us to know by mentioning this, this famine that he's connecting Ruth, this Moabite woman, with the same kind of individuals as Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. He's elevating her status. And what is their response? Elimelech, an Israelite, with his wife Naomi, also an Israelite, living in Bethlehem, they decide to move from the place of the house of bread, the place of praise, to Moab. To move from the familiar to the unfamiliar. Now I want to state something to you here. I want want you to understand something in the text here. And some in the first service said, I never saw this before, so maybe you've never seen it before. I want to present to you the reality that the decision to move from Bethlehem to Moab was a bad one. First of all, within the Hebrew, which I'm no expert, so I have to rely quite heavily, uh, heavily on some other resources that help me with this. The connotation, the way that it's languaged here, the verbiage that is used connotates the decision that Imelech made to move from Bethlehem to Moab was not a good one. It was not a wise one. In fact, there are other places in Scripture that say, if you call upon the Lord, I will heal your land. I don't know how many of you know this, but Moab originated 
from a sinful relationship. The nation of Moab literally comes into existence in chapter 19 of Genesis, verses 30 through 38, where there are two daughters, the daughters of Lot. And the daughters are worried that they're, they're not going to be able to produce. They're not going to find a husband. They're not going to be able to have an inheritance and pass the name along of Lot. So they take things into their own hands. They get their father drunk, and then they sleep with him. The result of the relationship, the nation of Moab. It is gross. It is gross. And, it's, it, and this is one of those texts that, that reminds us of, of the reality that, that when we take things into our own hands, we make things worse. We don't make them better. Further into the Old Testament, in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, we see that Moab opposed Israel at every turn when they tried to enter into the promised land. Numbers 25 shares with us the Moabite women who seduced Israel into whoredom. Deuteronomy chapter 23, we're told that the Moabites were excluded to be in the assembly of God. And recently in the book of Judges, the book in, in which Ruth was written, we see that the people of Israel were oppressed by Eglon, the king of Moab. And then there's what God says about Moab in Psalm 108, verse 9. Moab is my wash basin. That's a nice way of saying, it's my toilet. Moab is my wash basin. It's the way of the world. In addition to that, we're told that Israel was not to intermarry with nations that worshipped a false god, which Moab did. They, they, they worshipped a god that required a blood sacrifice, a human sacrifice. Moab was into child sacrifice. God essentially said to his people, don't marry people like that. If you marry people like that, their spouses are going to lead you away from the true God. You're going to start to compromise. You're going to start to embrace a life of idolatry, a life that isn't healthy. Don't intermarry. Make sure, it's the Old Testament equivalent of saying, make sure when you get in a relationship with somebody, they love Jesus. Can I just take a moment just to teach on that just for, for just a little bit? If you want to make sure your marriage is going to do well, you're going to, you're going to need two big things. Okay, this is for anybody who's single, anybody who's engaged. If you're already married, you're stuck in this, okay? Like, <laughs> number one, number one, you need forgiveness. You cannot be married for any length of time if you don't understand forgiveness. Number two, you need to know grace. Grace literally means you favor someone in spite of them. You know who gives those two things in spades? Jesus. Where he literally takes it to the most extreme. You want to know forgiveness? Die. You want to know grace? Only I can give it to you. So how can you be in a relationship with somebody and have it fully thrive and work if those two pieces aren't there and you can't look to the one who gives it to you completely? You can't give grace to somebody if you don't understand how much you need grace. And you can't give forgiveness to somebody if you don't know how much you need forgiveness. And then in addition to that, you can't give it and receive it if you don't fully get it from Jesus first because your wife and your husband will never give it to you completely. I just, like when I do weddings, I just remove all responsibility off the husband and wife to do this well and to do it perfectly because you can't. You can't. And then that way, you know, when you're in the kitchen, my wife and I do this on occasion, you're like, you're broken, I'm broken, I love you. All right, let's move on with life. Because God is good. So God will literally 
allow, I believe, famines in your life to move you. He'll even allow you to make stupid decisions and still bless you. You still see the grace of God in this. What Elimelech did was not wise. What Naomi did to go along with Elimelech was not wise. The move, the literal move from Bethlehem to Moab was the decision they made out of pressure. And because they did it out of pressure, the result is catastrophic within the text. Remember I shared with you some of the meanings of the names. Elimelech's name literally means God is my king. Naomi's name means pleasant or lovely. Malon, the son, his name means song. And Chilion means satisfaction or completion. And what we see when Elimelech moves from Moab to Israel is what we typically see when we make decisions out of pressure or out of sin without seeking God. We see the death of God as king. Then we see the loss of praise in our hearts. And we see the loss of completion. Notice the progression. It says from, the, from, from, from Bethlehem, a man went. First he left. Then they were there in Moab. The text infers that this probably was going to be a temporary move just to receive food for a little while. They didn't return back to their people, back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. But we see, no, they then settled there. They became planted there. It's the same kind of progression that we deal with in sin. Initially, we take a taste, only just for a little bit. Then we start to dive deeper into that sin. Then we're kind of hanging out in it. And then all of a sudden, we, we don't know how to escape. We're stuck there. Then we see death in our lives. There's death in Moab. There's death in doing things the way the world tells us to do it. There's always death when you play in the toilet bowl of the world. Death to self. Death to your joy. Death to your praise. And then we see in verse 4, we're told that the, the wives then do what they should not have done. I'm sorry, the wives, the sons, do what they should not have done. They intermarry with individuals that, Women that don't know God. And then there's something really specific in verse 4 I want you to notice. They were married for how long before they died? Ten years. Ten is actually a very interesting number, especially for the people of Israel. Again, we're reading the story. You would think the story would progress uh, in a way that we would see most love stories occur. Right? The Emelech passes away, the, the husbands take wives, and after you get married, then comes children. But there are no children. There's barrenness. Ten years of barrenness. And the Israelites had kind of a custom that, that if you were barren for ten years, you then could take a, a radical alternative or remedial steps to produce for a yourself for a child. Now, now, remember here, this is, a, this is a culture where having children is a big deal. And not having children is a big deal. It looks like something's wrong in your life. There's sin in your life. There's a lack of favor in God's life if you don't have kids. In addition to that, there's the issue of, of heritage and passing on your, your belongings to someone, passing on your name to somebody. So, so a father having a son and the first son, it's a big deal. The first son gets the name. The first son gets the inheritance. All of this echoes into the gospel. We see Jesus is the firstborn of God who gets all of his inheritance from God the Father and then Jesus shares that inheritance with us and considers us 
one of the firstborn among him. So we're seeing this, this played out. The author is being intentional and in letting us know, 10 years, it's there for a reason. Why is it there? Because there's barrenness. There's no children. It actually echoes to Genesis chapter 16. Do you remember what happens in Genesis 16? We're, we're in a place, by, by the time we get into that chapter, where Abraham has been told by, by God himself, you're, you're going to have a child. And he laughs because he's really old. He says, you're going to have a child, and through you, many nations will be blessed. Many people are going to come to me, and I'm going to, basically, I'm going I'm to create a new nation and a new hope through you, Abraham. Ten years goes by. So what does Sarah do? What does Sarah do in the famine of her womb? She goes to her husband, Abraham, and says, we must take remedial steps. God apparently has forgotten, but we've got to fulfill the promise on our own somehow. So this is what you need to do, Abraham. Hagar, my, my lovely assistant, you need to lie with her, sleep with her, and impregnate her. And again, the results by taking things into their own hands are catastrophic. But 10 years of barrenness. One author says, in regards to this, you see Naomi's experience is a perfect picture of exactly what takes place when we leave the house of bread and the place of praise. First, God is no longer our king. Then the song departs from our heart. Finally, satisfaction leaves our soul. It's an order that is absolute and irrefutable. And we have all experienced it to some degree. The temptation to abandon the bread of heaven for this world's provision is very strong. But can we just confess as a church family this morning that the way of the world is not well equipped to deal with the inner parts and the needs of our souls? The world will not have the answers. It won't be able to produce for you the joy that you're looking for. At this point in time, I want you just to reflect upon the famine in your life and just ask and be honest with your Savior this morning something that is quite simple for you probably to answer. Whatever you're dealing with, how are you dealing with it? Are you pressed against a wall? Do you feel pressure to make a decision? And so you're trying to figure it out on your own. You're trying to figure it out on your, your own intellect. You're trying to, to work it out in your own mind. You're trying to get to a place where, where, where there's peace in your heart. If you're like me, like sitting still is not an option. I've got one of those personalities. I'm looking in my backyard. Still got three feet of snow back there. Don't want it there. But it's there. And we're at that place with, with the way the snow has fallen. We haven't had snow in a little while. So all the junk from the trees is on top of the snow. And I look out the window and I say to myself, I must pick it up. And then I go on out there the other day to go pick it up. And yeah, I'm one of those guys dumb enough to try to start shoveling my grass so I can see it sooner than later. The, 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 the snow's a little bit too hard, so I gave up. But I still look out that window and it mocks me. We are, my friends, creatures of comfortability. We, we don't want to, to be in an uncomfortable place. We don't like uncomfortability. But, but we have to be honest with ourselves that, that to feel comfortable is an illusion. There's really no such thing. At one point, you will suffer. And if you're not suffering, someone else is suffering. And the Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. There are people who are mourning right now that we should be mourning with. 
I mean, this idea of comfortability just drives into everything that we know, especially as Americans. I remember it, it'll be uh, 15 years in November that my wife and I moved here from Southern California to take over the youth ministry. My wife, if you don't know, she was born and raised in Palm Desert, which is just a few miles above hell. <laughs> the, the heat rises. And when we moved here, we, we looked around at houses. My wife had never really been to the Truckee Lake Tahoe area except for a couple visits. And when we moved here, it was a big move for us. We were in our first year of marriage. And we looked at several places, and my wife had one place that she really liked. And I told her, we don't want to move to that place. Just trust me. We want to we find another place. And, and because it was a big move, I felt like, okay, well, I, I got to compromise on this, and I I, I've got to give her this place. It's kind of how I felt. We, and we, we signed a one-year lease in Tahoe Donner. In the winter of 2004. I don't know if you know, if you're visiting this morning, Tahoe Donner uh, sits right below Alaska. So we made the move from just above hell to right below Alaska. And it started snowing the day we moved, November 1st, and didn't stop until June that year. My wife cried our first year here. Now, I remember, you know, coming from Southern California, we went over that winter, and we went over to our thermostat, and I set it to 72 degrees, because that's the weather every day in Southern California. Thinking to myself, we'd be fine until the first month was up, and I received our PUD bill for $400. I looked at the bill, dismayed. I walked over to the thermostat. I turned it down to 65. I threw my wife a blanket and a sweatshirt, and I said, get used to it. <laughs> Even to this day, when my kids say they're cold, we tell, put on a sweater. The thermostat is on lockdown. Something as stupid as the temperature, the taste of our food, the kind of service we receive in a restaurant, the way that we're treated on the phone when we are calling AT&T with a complaint, or all of these things, we, we have a tendency to put ourselves first and to be in a place of comfort. And, and, then, and then when we feel uncomfortable, it's all too natural for us to try to figure it out on our own, to crunch the numbers to petition, to try to convince, to self-justify, or to self-medicate in some kind of form or another. I appreciate Kimber's statement. To some degree or another, we're all suffering with codependency. Ultimately, the, the goal is for all of us to be codependent, but to be codependent upon the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and Him alone. So what is the solution for our famine? What should we do when our backs are against the wall and we feel, pre we feel pressure or uncomfortability? I want to present to you two major points. The first point is this. Stay in Bethlehem. What I mean quite literally is stay in the gospel. Stay centered upon Jesus Christ. Don't leave or forsake him. Don't walk away from the centrality that you, my friend, are in great need of grace. That you are in great need of saving. 
We need salvation, not, not just at one given moment, but every single day we need his saving grace. We've shared before that great tension that we have to carry as Christians that I was sharing with Jeff this week. There's that, that part of us that has to be well aware of our sinful nature, that we are imperfect, that we're not okay, and that we're all sick, and that we're all dying. You need a heavy dose of that reality. But as much as you need the heavy dose of that, you need the other heavy dose of how loved you are and how gracious God is. You have to find the story amazing in this. Every book in the Bible is about God. It isn't about Ruth. I know what your Bible is. You're reading at the top. It says Ruth. It isn't about Ruth. It's about Jesus. Ruth Ruth happens to find salvation in God, and we rejoice in that. But Elimelech made a mistake. Naomi made a mistake. They went. They didn't go to Bethlehem. They didn't go back to God. They didn't worship God. They did it on their own, and the result was death. But what does God still do in the midst of their stupidity and in the midst of your stupidity? He still blesses you. We don't look and read the story, and we're not to look at it and go, wow, look at what a great job Elimelech did. You know, that's what I'm supposed to do. Oh, it's okay. Now that we're in Moab, we can justify our sin, and we can allow our men to intermarry with these women who don't worship God, and they justify their actions. No, 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 no. We don't, we don't celebrate that. We celebrate the fact that in spite of their bad decision, God's purposes still prevail. God will put things in your life. You'll make bad decisions, and they'll hurt, and they'll bring bad results. But in the end, God always is victorious. The gospel is underneath all of this book. God's goodness is underneath all of this book. And if you're a Christian, everything that happens to you, everything is ultimately for your good and God's great glory. We all just say amen to that. You can rejoice in the hard things of life. Another commentator says, the pain of God's chastening work is therefore never harsh. It is never more than absolutely necessary to turn us to himself. It is measured and designed to show us the emptiness of the paths we have chosen for ourselves so that we may return to his ways. What is more, when we do return to him, we discover that it is his delight to fill the void we have created. The father delights to clothe the naked prodigal, exalts to honor the humiliated prodigal, thrills to feed the starving prodigal, and rejoices to celebrate with the downcast prodigal. It takes the proud and brings them low. But once we have recognized our inner poverty, he delights to exalt us and seat us with princes. What an awesome God he is, and how great is his mercy and grace. Number one, stay in Bethlehem. Number two, call upon the Lord. Remember I stated personality like mine doesn't want to sit still. This is what the Bible teaches, that that when there's an issue and there's a problem, don't be hasty to move. I've learned this in leadership, that, that there will be people who, who want you to do things right away. And over the years, I've had individuals call or text or email, especially during a political heightened climate. You've got to say something about Trump. You've got to say something about Obama. You've got to say something about this issue. You've got to talk about this thing. You've got, you've, if you don't do it, you're not doing your job, and we're going to leave the church. And we laugh, but I'm telling you, 
I have had, we have had people leave our church because I've refused to push into a direction that I wasn't sure I was supposed to push into. Usually the response in any of those issues is simply this. We will continue to do what we've always done. We will teach the Bible and we will teach Jesus and we will let the gospel change the world. Call upon the Lord. Don't react, don't respond, don't feel pressured. Sit and wait. Second Samuel says in verse 22, chapter 22, verse 4, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Remember I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon the, the article. One to 200 churches a week closing. A sad state of affairs, to say the least. Someone in the first service said some of those churches probably needed to die. There's probably some truth to that. Can I just add one little caveat to that reality, though, that you and I are not part of a dying church. We're part of a living church, and a church with life in it. We have old people. We've got a lot of little booger eaters running around here, too. We have teenagers still trying to figure it out. Like, what's, we don't have old people? You're right. They're all in the first service. <laughs> don't tell them I said that. It's our secret. I mean, can we, can we just rejoice at the diversity we have? We have broken people, and we have broken people. And we rejoice that God is working in all of these areas, and we ask him to continue to grace us. We make the other acknowledgement that our church is growing not because of anything that we're doing well, but because God is good. And he promised. I have to remind myself often of this. It's his church, and he promised to build it. Call upon the Lord. The article, to give you the conclusion of the article, this is what it reads. You remember it said that we had to make some dramatic changes. And then he says, but what kind of changes? Should we once again make more contemporary, our already contemporary music? Maybe we are lacking the laser lights to, enha to enhance our worship experience. I've always wondered what it would be like to preach with laser lights. Should we reduce the 22-minute message to 20 minutes? That's a joke here. What if we had Starbucks coffee and a holder by each seat? Man, I might need to get a little heavy-handed here. Wait a minute. He said dramatic changes. Hmm. What about if we do a high-tech phone poll at the beginning of each service to determine what the sermon topic should be that day? Then we could have an open mic for anyone to share what they think on the subject. I don't have a slide for this part, but when churches declined and morality in the nation ebbed in the early 1700s and then again in the 1790s, they had no, consult, no, con no consultants to call, no seminars to attend, no church growth books to read. All they had was prayer. And pray they did. They cried out to God, fasted, and preached sermons that called the people to repentance. And guess what? 
God responded and did what only he can do. He revived the church and awakened communities all across the colonies and the infant nation. Maybe it's time to learn from our ancestors and throw ourselves on the mercy of the Lord, repent and cry out to him until he responds with transforming revival, the kind of transforming revival we desperately need. Notice there's no gimmick to this. There's no program to this. The simple solution for revival is to continue to preach God's words. We don't want a famine of the word of God. The second thing is for you and I to pray. There, there's more open seats in the first service as there are this morning in this service. But I still firmly believe and am convinced that God still wants to save people in the Tahoe Truckee area. That Jesus wants to bring revival. Now here's something that's really quite amazing. If you actually study revival, and I encourage you, for those of you who are kind of Bible nerds who like doing this kind of thing, study how they occurred. Because when we preach about revival, when someone preaches about revival, the first thing we do is our minds go to, our minds go to this place of like all of these other people who aren't in the building getting saved and starting to come. But if you, story, if you study it historically, the reality is the first part of revival is that people who are in church who thought they were saved finally get saved. Now, I know many of you in here, and I would never declare that, that you aren't a Christian. It's not my job to know that. It's God's job to ultimately decide, and it's in your heart to ultimately know. But can I present to you this morning for you just to consider the reality of whether you truly know Jesus or you don't. And at some point, if the Holy Spirit has ministered to you and he has spoken to you, and you know that the saving grace of God on the cross is for you, Declare within your heart and faith right now that make him your savior today. Give your entire life to him today. Don't wait for tomorrow because you have no idea what it's going to bring. See God as what he truly is, a God of love and a God of grace who made the journey from heaven itself to come to you to be your Emmanuel, to be God with you. You know, one of the results I didn't mention earlier is that part of the death of what Naomi experiences is the death of self, the death of, the death of identity. Before all of it occurs, her name is Naomi. After everyone dies, the text just calls her in verse 5, woman. She's lost her identity. She's left her place of community. She's left the place where she learned about Yahweh. She's left her friends and her family. She's gone to a place that only the world she believes in that time can satisfy. She loses everyone in her family, and then she loses her identity. Do you know the number one thing we need as Christians right now, more than anything else, is the identity we have in Jesus. It's one of the things as a parent I'm continually trying to teach my kids. You are made in the image of God. You don't have to earn your identity. In fact, I get a little uncomfortable when people say, you are a pastor. I just, I've struggled with that because I don't feel like I'm a pastor. I honestly don't. I don't feel like I'm, my identity isn't a pastor. I feel way more comfortable over here. I'm a sinner saved by grace, just like you. I'm no different. I don't want to be different. I don't want to be seen as the, the guy who prays more. I don't want to be seen as the guy who studies the Bible more. I don't want to be seen as some spiritual giant. I'm not those things. 
I am a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. He has taken me from a family of sinners, and he's moved me into a family of sinners also saved by Jesus Christ. He's given me community and friends and love and provision beyond anything I could ever imagine. None of it I deserved. None of it I worked hard for. I just do my part, which is to call upon Jesus who is good. I invite you to do the same. Recognize yourself and who you are. You're a sinner. And either you're saved by grace or you're still lost in your sin. And we want to pray for more people, starting in this room and then outside, as we call upon Lord to fill these seats. Can I invite you to please be praying for Easter? Like, like really pray. God, would you use our imperfect, short and stocky little pastor to bring people to Jesus? God, would you use me? Would you press upon me who I'm supposed to invite, who I'm supposed to bring? God, would you give me courage to, to share with those who need it that, you know what, come, come on Easter and, and, and just see what it's all about. Just experience it. No pressure. I'll pick you up even. Would you just come? And we just ask God to do what he does, bring revival. Amen? This morning, I'm going to invite my elders and uh, fellow leaders and deacons to come forward. Jeff, if you could come on up too. And Jeff was really worried he'd mess this up in the first service. He did right. And um, they're going to pass the elements to you. And as they do that, oh, first you'll get the bread, then you'll get the juice, and, and hold on to it, and then we'll partake together. But this is an opportunity for us to, to just celebrate that reality of the gospel. This is, this is Bethlehem. This is Jesus. This is our oneness with him. Just take a few moments here, and we'll partake together.
hope and it's my prayer that you know he deeply loves you. And I also hope and pray that you know that the leadership here of the church cares for you greatly. You know, I never, ever thought in a million years as a young person I was going to be a pastor. And there are plenty of people around the church here who knew me as a kid who would probably say the same thing. One of the things uh, I experienced not that long ago was another young man. He came to me in the gym, and he said, I think I want to be a pastor. And I've shared before with you that typically when a young person says that to me, I tell him, don't do it. And he asked why, and I said, well, you know, in ministry, you experience suffering and pain. It's exacerbated in a level that a lot of people don't deal with. It's not to say that you don't deal with pain. It's not to elevate the status, status as a pastor, but I shared with him, how many times in a month do you think you could do a hospital visit, do a graveside service, counsel someone in the week that they want to kill themselves? talk with a couple that wants to leave one another, hear the heartbreak of a mother whose son has been rejecting the gospel message, or another parent dealing with their child with some other heavy issue. Oh, yeah, and that was just last week. He said, well, I don't know. And I said, you're right, you won't know until you do it. (laughs) And the reason I share that again isn't to elevate the status as a pastor or what ministers do. It's, It's to stay to you verbally that that you know we deeply care about every individual that walks through the store. And there's just not enough of us to go around, in all honesty. And that's why we have to keep pointing back to the one that is sufficient for everybody in all places. To make you codependent upon the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that you can actually love your imperfect leaders and be part of an imperfect church. Lord, we thank you that you came on our behalf. You took a punishment that we rightly deserve. And you elevated our status, Lord, from sinner to saint. We thank you that you're present in this room. We thank you that you are at work right now. We thank you for the hardships in our lives, whether they have been caused by our own choices or whether that They've been something that has happened to us, and we rejoice that you're going to bring good, ultimate good, Lord, out of those things, that you'll be glorified, and that more people will come to know you as Lord and Savior. Thank you for building your church, birthing your church, and keeping your church. We thank you for the sacrifice given in you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may partake.